Hi. It's been so long since I've been able to be here with you and see you all. How was your summer? Good? Mine was crazy. I hung out with high school students all summer. We went everywhere, all over the world, all over all the camps. And I'm exhausted, and I'm so happy to be back with you, and I'm so glad that they are here in our service. So give them a big round of applause, and thank you for welcoming us in. Some of you may or may not be football fans, and I realize that football has just started 30 seconds ago, and some of you may be playing fantasy football, so I promise I will make this as exciting as possible and probably get tackled in the midway part of this so that you stay tuned in and I gather your attention. So if your phone goes off, try not to look. I promise your fantasy football team will do horrible this year. That's how it always goes. No one's going to win. There are no winners. It's a giant, huge trap. Um, Let's begin this morning. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question, okay? And it's probably not true of most of us, but we got to get in the right headspace for us this morning. Here's the question. Have you ever been part of a revolution? Have you ever been part of a revolution? Probably not most of you, and I'm talking about a real revolution, a political revolution where you take over the powers that be are bearing down on you and you can stand it no longer. We and your friends, you gather late at night into a a room in a basement that's candle lit and you're eating some cheese. I don't know why, but you're talking about how we must take over. We got to do this. The way that things are being done is no good and we must start a new rule. No, probably not. But in a way, some of us have been part of smaller revolutions. Maybe something at work. The way things are being run here is just wrong. we got to do things differently. Maybe in your own family, you've started a revolution of healthiness. My family has always done this, and it's wrong. You know what? Not me. I'm going to change. I'm going to be a cycle breaker or a revolutionary person and take over the story of my family. So in a way, all of us, some of us, And all of us have been part of a revolution. But I want to put us in that mindset of a real revolution. Imagine us here today, gathered in the dark, on the eve of revolution. Something is going to happen. The way things have been run for a long time are no more. And this isn't a revolution of politics. This is a revolution of human nature. The way that human beings respond to issues is wrong. And we, by the power of something greater, are going to do something about it. People have responded in anger for years. We will respond in kindness. People have found the best way to serve themselves. We will find the best way to serve each other. The type of revolution I'm trying to get you in the mindset of is the revolution that Jesus brought here to earth, that Jesus brought us. In the passage we looked at last week, I don't know if you were picking up on it, but I was picking up on something very special happening. And that's this. Jesus had come to earth to gather disciples to prove that he was the, say it with me now, the Messiah. He was the chosen one. He was the one who would bring a new start, a new beginning. Salvation would come through him. He was the promised 
Messiah. And as he came to prove and to do the work of the Messiah, there's a pivotal moment that happened last week. Can you remember what it was? I know it was seven days ago. For me, that feels like an eternity of time. But what happened seven days ago? That story is a crucial moment. Jesus gathers his disciples together. He asks them a very important question. Matt Davis, who spoke last week, talked about how they were in this this strip mall of the gods, really, you know, of all these gods lined up, all of these people who you can serve, all of these, these ways in which you can pledge your allegiance to the gods. And Jesus, along with his disciples, says, hey, who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? I mean, it's a pretty simple question. Who do you think I am? I know what people say I am. Who do you think I am? And this moment comes in a whisper, although it's Peter, so he probably yelled it. You're the Messiah. That's who you are. You're the, you're the one. What are you talking about? Who are you? We know who you are. You're the guy. You're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one who's going to bring the revolution. You're the one who's going to bring the change. <clears throat> you're the one who's going to bring the salvation. And it says in that moment, Jesus leans back and says, they're ready. They're ready. And he begins to talk to them. Open your Bible to Mark 9. And open up your bulletin if you have that. In Mark 9, and in your bulletin you can follow along, Jesus begins to paint a picture of what it's going to be like to follow him. To be part of his revolution. One that is in a way political, but more It's a revolution against our nature, about who we are as people, about what we will look like, how we will act, the way we will treat one another, and the priorities we have here. And he says the most revolutionary thing ever. If you want to fire people up, people who've been waiting for just forever, centuries, for the Messiah, the chosen one, and these guys are the ones who are his right-hand men. They're the ones who are going to be the leaders. They're going to sit on these thrones of leadership. This is what Jesus says to them. Do you think this would pump them up? I always picture Jesus in this moment taking a knee like this. He says this. He looks out to his, his followers. You guys here in the front row. You are disciples. That's what you get for sitting in the front row. And he says, <clears throat> he's talking to them about what it will be like if you profess to follow him. And he says, look, in Mark 9. Jesus was saying to them, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. What do you think they did with that? I know what they did, I bet. They nudged each other and went, I told you so. This is it. This is the moment. They're rubbing their hands together. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be so They're pumped up. What are they ta- what is Jesus talking about? Clearly he's not talking about the second coming of Christ because I hate to break it to you, they all are dead <laughs> besides Jesus. Some of you won't taste death till you see the the kingdom coming in power. Clearly Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection, the power of the spirit coming. Some of you are going to feel and know and see the spirit of God descend upon us and experience the power of the kingdom of God. They are 
psyched out of their mind. This is the revolution they've been waiting for. <clears throat> Here's what I want to ask us in the, right in the beginning. Before we start, before we look at uh, this famous passage of the transfiguration, when Jesus says to them this passage, I say to you, truly, there are some of you who will not taste death till you see the kingdom of coming in power. And they are excited for this revolution for them. Here's my question. Do we have the same revolutionary spirit in us when we think about Jesus being the Messiah? Do we? I just would like to confess that I don't think we do all the time. I don't think I do all of the time. When I think about my dedication to Jesus, I have to admit, <clears throat> at my worst, it looks like a half-hearted hobby, my dedication to Jesus. I've been traveling a lot this summer, and I've been in a lot of airports. And as I'm in an airports, uh, for some reason, I always find myself going to that, that kiosk or that, you know, store that's inside the airport lobby. What do you call an airport lobby? The terminal. And as you're in the terminal, you're, you know, you, you always want a bottle of water or something. You're bored out of your mind, because if you're like me, you show up two days early to get to the airport so that you can sleep, rest, do your taxes, and then get on the flight, completely bored out of your mind. So I always get there early. I'm walking around. Oh, what am I going to do? And like, I'm going to just sit down and chill out. You know, two hours goes by. Okay, what am I going to do the rest of two hours? And then you go to this store. You buy a bottle of water, and you peruse all the things that are there. And there's always this giant rack of magazines. You know what I'm talking about? This wall of magazines. I don't know why, but 80% of them are always just horribly inappropriate and don't know where to look. And you're like, ah, why? Who was reading a magazine like that? And you're looking for your thing. What magazine am I going to buy? Maybe you're like a financial guy. I don't know what that means. But you look, oh, financial magazine, I'll buy that. I always get drawn, I don't know why, to the surfing magazine. I'm like, oh, yeah, surfing magazine. Nobody really wants to buy one of those magazines. You're just so bored. You're like, I guess I'll buy a magazine and look at that for the next 20 minutes. And you're looking and you're like, ah, oh, you get drawn to something that you're, you're kind of a fan of. I pick up the surfing magazine. I flip through it in line and realize I shouldn't buy this. I, I already read the whole thing and they charge you $20 for it. And as you're sitting there, I think to myself, man, this is the way I sadly approach Jesus sometimes. I sadly approach the Bible sometimes. Yeah, if I'm looking at a whole stack of things, I choose the, I'll choose the Bible. I like, I mean, I like that one. I'm a, I'm a fan of it. But it's this half-hearted, out of the options I have, I would choose that one. Is that the kind of revolutionary spirit do you think that the Messiah wanted us to have? Do you think that's the kind of revolutionary spirit if Jesus were to come back right now and to look at us and say, all right, let's see how the people of God have picked up this revolution that I started. And they looked at us. What would they see? Would they see us flipping through the Bible as if it was a magazine we're a fan of? Or would we truly bear the marks of the revolutionary spirit in us? So I have to ask you, I gotta wake you up. I gotta feel, I gotta feel like you're on board with me. Do we have that spirit here at Calvary? Do we? No, 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 no. Do we have that spirit here at Calvary? Come on! Yeah, we do. I know we do. Let's hear it one more time. Come on!
I know we do. I've seen it in us. Six days later, the story continues. Read with me. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them to a high mountain by themselves. I always like to put myself in the mindset of the disciples. What do you think these guys are thinking? Some of you will not taste death until I come. Power. All right, you three guys, come with me. He's going to kill us. Are we the ones who aren't going to make it? Or are we the ones who make it? Are the other guys going to die? They're terrified. And then any time you read in the Bible that they went up to a high mountain by themselves, you know something just absolutely crazy is going to happen. You know what's probably going to happen? God's going to show up. God's going to show up. Because repeatedly throughout the Bible, when you find yourself on a high mountain by yourself, God shows up. So here's the story. He takes Peter, James, and John. He brings them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And in verse 3, And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And even crazier, Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. We have an incredibly bizarre, an incredibly holy, an incredibly important moment as these three disciples follow Jesus up the mountain. As they walk, his garments begin to appear whiter and brighter and shine more and more. And as he gets to a certain point, he begins to talk with people. Who's he talking to? Elijah, Moses. Here's a question you've probably never thought about. The disciples, the guys who are there, they've never seen Elijah and Moses. I mean, they have no idea what they look like, right? They probably look like just people, but they can't recognize them as if we could recognize people because we have self-portraits and pictures and these sorts of things. So I always think to myself, how did they know? Is it, was, it a, was it just this internal, we know who they are? Did Jesus introduce them? Which, can you talk about the oddest introduction in the entire world? Hi, uh, guys. Um, this is John. John, this is Elijah. Meet. I don't know. Did they overhear the conversation? So, yeah, Moses. Yeah, Moses. And they're like, did he just say Moses? How did they know? Did Jesus greet them? Elijah, Moses, my friends. I don't know what happened. This moment, which we'll learn in a second, terrifies the disciples. It terrifies them. Jesus is interacting. And there's a lot of interesting things that are happening here. Elijah, the father of all the prophets. Moses, father of the law. Jesus interacting with the prophets and the law. Bringing close to him in glowing glory What represents the law? What represents the prophets? What they're talking about, we don't know. But as the disciples look at them, they have a very interesting response, which we'll look at in a second. But as they respond, as this is happening, God shows up, exactly like I said would happen. God shows up. Read with me again, jumping down to verse 7. In verse 7, Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, the voice says. What is he going to say? This is my beloved son. Look at how glowing he is. Look at who he's talking to. And then hits him. 
Boom. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to them. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. As Jesus interacts with Elijah and Moses, such a powerful image of Jesus being exalted higher than Moses, higher than Elijah. Jesus is over the law. Jesus is over the prophets. This is God's beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus has told his disciples a lot. He's going to tell them even more. Listen to him. It's an interesting passage because it harkens back to something else, which no one uses the word harkens anymore, but it does harken back to something else. It is in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, verse 15 and 16, I'll read it. You don't have to flip there, but it says this in Exodus 24. Then Moses who now was just up on the mountain with Jesus, went up to the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on the mountain for, a mountain of Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses. What is he talking to Moses? And in Exodus 20, verse 22, it says this. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, again, from the cloud, thus you shall... Say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Earlier on, Jesus is, or Jesus is in this moment on the mountain, and the cloud appears. The voice of God comes from it. It makes us recall the moment where Moses is on the mountain, and the cloud appears, and God speaks and says, this is my law. See that it comes from me. Through Moses to you, obey it. Listen to it. Listen to it. Fast forward. Jesus is on the mountain. He's exalted higher than Moses. This is not just my servant Moses. This is my son. My beloved son. Listen to him. So here's the question. For them and for us, it's a difficult question. Jesus is calling us to listen to him. He's calling Calvary, all of you, individually and collectively, we are called to listen to Jesus. Here's the problem, everyone, and I will, I will convict myself first. We just, don't, we just don't listen to him. Whether we do and we don't. We don't listen to him enough. We don't listen to him accurately enough. We don't listen to him often enough. We kind of just don't. I started a job when I was 15 years old. I worked at Baskin Robbins. I was a connoisseur of all the 31 flavors, and I knew them like the back of my hand. And the day that I started was a weird day. I worked with a girl who was really great. She really liked techno music. I don't know if any of you know what techno music is, but it's odd. And she was talking to me about techno music, and she said, you know what my favorite thing to do here at the 31 Flavors is I like to mop the floor. It was a long, and it's a long counter, the one that I worked at, with all of the ice cream. I like to mop the floor, and I like to slide across the floor once it's mopped, all the way to the other end, listening to techno music. <laughs> Think about me as a 16-year-old, like, working sounds pretty cool, all right. I think I could get into this. Is this a career position, scooping ice cream? 
I'm like, okay, sure. The manager comes in, the guy who owns the franchise, and says, hey, don't forget, this is what I want you to do. I need you guys to label all of the incoming ice cream that I brought in the other day. you got to put it into the walk-in freezer. Make sure you scrape around all of the ice cream tubs at the end of the night. And don't forget to lock up. Make sure you take all of the ice cream cakes and move them into the walk-in freezer. Just laundry list of things to do. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, like, when does the sliding across the surface thing right start? He leaves. We slide around the whole time. We lock up at the end of the night. We haven't done anything he told us to do. Just not a thing. I mean, we locked the door. We barely turned the lights off. I think I left the trash from my lunch break in the like, little back office thing. I come in the next day. The guy is standing there just dumbfounded how we didn't do a single thing that he told us to do. So I, you know how you, I told you to take the ice cream cakes Put him in the walk-in freezer. Oh, <clears throat> yes, I, I remember that. So you just didn't do that. Uh, no, I just didn't know. I, I, I don't know, I just didn't do that. I, so you know how I told you to scrape the ice cream so that it wouldn't freeze and become unservable? Yes, I remember that, yes. Uh, I did the, the chocolate chip. And the other 30 flavors? Uh, no, I just didn't do that. I don't know, I just didn't do that. Could you imagine his surprise? The, what, 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 what are you doing? Why did I bring you here? What, do you understand the purpose? Think of Jesus looking at his disciples. I mean, maybe looking at us. Are you doing the things I told you to do? I told you to do a lot. Are we listening to him? Sometimes we just don't. And I get it. It's tough. Jesus tells us to sacrifice of our lives, to lay our lives down. He calls us to a big task, to build the church, the church that's built on relationships, on love, built in every home, on every street corner, in every classroom, in every business, in every park. Build the church. Think less of yourself and more of others. If you have a lot of money, give it all up to the people who have no money. If you have too many clothes, give them up to the people who have no clothes. If you have time, give of your time. When you're hurt, don't hurt back. Love. Those who call themselves your enemies, those are the ones you should love. When a culture says we have no rules, do whatever you want, you're the one who says we are actually going to hold to the truths of Jesus. We're going to stand up for what's right. And in conviction, in bravery, we will do things that are unpopular. This is what Jesus told us to do. And I get it. It's hard. What am I supposed to do? You know, I go and sign up for safe families? Yeah! That's what Jesus told us to do. Yes! That's exactly what you should do. What am I supposed to do? I mean, like, give money to the church so they could help the people of their local community and support the education of Jesus? Yes! That, absolutely! Are you listening to him? And I know it's hard. Look, I get it. I grew up here. I, I know, it's hard. You get lulled into thinking that it's easy. It's, it's hard. But here's my question. How much of it is it actually hard? Is it actually difficult for us? Or how much of it are we afraid and we're lazy? How much of it are we lazy and we're afraid? Ah, it sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's really scary. Yeah, I know. They, all the disciples died. I don't know if you know that. They all died. Yeah. 
Jesus, he's literally about to die. Yeah, he knows. He knows. That's why we're given the church. That's why we're given each other. That's why you're given a young man like myself to scream at you on Sundays about it, to remind you about it. That's why you're given friends and family and youth leaders to say, hey, I know that it's hard. I got you. I'm walking with you. To remind you, to encourage you, because it's hard. So Jesus tells us, this is my beloved son. Will you listen to him? Will you listen to him? Now, the ending is, is, I think, one of my favorite parts. The question comes up, what will you do with the mountaintop? We have this mountaintop experience. What will we do with it? There's two passages I think are amazing. They sometimes get blown out of proportion, but I think it's good for us to think about them now. Peter says this to Jesus when he sees the the revealed Christ, the glowing Christ. He says this, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Let us make three tabernacles or tents, one for you, one for Moses and Elijah. For he did not know what to do because he had become terrified, which understandably, he had become absolutely terrified. How does Peter respond? In absolute fear. He thinks about himself. What should I be doing? I know what I could do. I'll tabernacle this. I will build a tent for them to house their glory in. This is the moment where they're coming back. I will make a place for them. I will house them. I could do that. I know how to make tents. I was a great tent maker when I was younger. I know understand how to do the whole thing. He responds in how he thinks about the situation, perhaps missing the glory that's in front of him. And if you read further, and in verse 9, on their way back from the mountain, as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate any, to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement. And they asked themselves, discussing with one another, What rising from the dead then? They were asking him these questions. Why is it that the scribes say Elijah must come first? Jesus corrects them. He says, Elijah does come first and to restore all things. And yet how it is written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wished, just just as it was written to him. How will we respond to that mountaintop experience. There's two ways that happen in the scripture. Peter seems to miss a little bit of what's going on, the glory and the revolutionary moment, this unexpected journey that Jesus is calling them to be a part of. He kind of misses it, wanting to build these tabernacles to house their glory there. On their way down, as Jesus says, tell no one of what you've seen. They say, okay. He says, until the Son of Man rises from the dead, this idea of what does it mean? To, what do you mean rise from the dead? I thought this was the revolution. Are you going to die? What about Elijah? Doesn't Elijah need to come? Elijah did come first. They respond in confusion about the paradox that lies before them. Let me give you an example of how this happens to me. I was in Austria when I was younger. This beautiful mountainscape. We had, in my Bible school that I was going to in Austria when I was younger, they had taken us up to this glacier. And we were having this moment up at this glacier. It was beautiful, friends. It was amazing. It looked like this. I mean, imagine me, a 20-year-old, looking out amongst this, just this most beautiful landscape you could ever imagine, staring out at these peaks that 
poked up above the clouds. The splendor of God and his creation before me. I remember at that time, it was about a month before I was going to come back here to California. And I had worked at Baskin Robbins. And I was really worried about getting a job. It was like my main concern. And I thought, you know where I'd love to work? Island's Restaurant. You know what that is? Island's Restaurant. Yeah, I was like, man, I'd love to work at Island's Restaurant. And I'm sitting here looking at this. I'm thinking to myself, you think they'd hire me to be a, like a server? No. I don't have enough experience to be a server. Maybe a busboy? Um, maybe, oh, what if I started at like the front desk and I walked people to their suits? I'm looking at this. I'm thinking about myself and my job working at Island's. I'm missing the glory of what God has put in front of me and focusing on myself. And far too often we do that. I come to you this morning and I say, the revolution of God is here. Jesus has given us a mission. We must listen to him. And we oftentimes say, yeah, that's great. I'm really stoked that I'm here this morning. I'm really excited about what Calvary's doing. It's great. I'm a big fan. But man, I go, you know, I got like a lot of, I got to work on me. I got to think about myself. I get that. But are we missing how powerful the revealed Christ is? This is just, a, this is just a, a mountain. Jesus lies in front of us, risen from the dead, the Messiah, to say, what will you do? Will you listen to me? Will you see me? Will you respond to me? Secondly, the question comes up, what will we do? As a church. And to this, I feel like it, the best thing to do is to look at the, the confusion of the disciples walking back from the mountain. There is a paradox that lies seemingly in the following of Jesus. It's this the revolution is here. Jesus has come to start his kingdom. It will come in power. We will have the Spirit of God and take over the world. But also, we must lie our, lie our lives down, lay our lives down to die and to be buried with Christ. And to have everything that's true of us be put to death so that we may rise again. Our very nature must be born again. What? No, this is a revolution. Yeah, it's a revolution, like Matt said last week. It's a revolution. It's a call to come and die so that we may begin again. Quickly, I, I, I think my, my own life parallels a story similar like this. My wife and I wanted to have kids forever. You guys know this, and you know that we have an adopted son, and he's the apple of our eye. He's, does that, people still say that? He's wonderful. He's a great little boy. We love it so much. But we had this vision for our lives. We're going to have kids. We're going to be that big old family that comes into church with like three minivans, and it's going to be great, and everyone's going to be like, oh, they got so many kids. When will they stop? And then we're like, what? We don't have, we can't have kids. And it was, in a way, an invitation of, of Jesus to say, yeah, yeah, this really is hard, huh? It's really hard. It's really difficult, and it's really sad, the things that happen to us sometimes. How will you respond? What will you do? And as my wife and I, we, we digged into adoption, not saying that this is a recovery and a, a fix for our infertility problems, but to say this gives us an opportunity to adopt and to struggle through the adoption process to find birth mom after birth mom where things don't work out. I say, God, what are you doing? God says, this is hard, isn't it? The problems are real. 
And then now, even now, as we, my wife and I step into the foster care system, to step into the foster care world to adopt kids out of foster care, we realize this is difficult, this is hard. But the question lies before us. The paradox exists in, right in front of my eyes, right now, today. Jesus calls us to something greater. He calls us to a kingdom not of this world, a vision bigger than this life, salvation for everyone, love for everyone, to lay our lives down for those who need us, especially the children, especially those in need, to think about them first. Are you listening? It's going to be hard, but will you do it? That's the paradox. In that lies freedom. That's the unexpected way of Jesus. In dying to ourselves, we find freedom in life. Here, let me give you this last point. As us, Calvary Church, and we, we close with this. And if you're in the worship team, you can come back up. As we close with this, what will we do, Calvary? What will we do? I read a, a book by Francis Chan recently that I loved. And in it, he gives an example of somebody, that somebody, somebody said something to him at his church a long time ago that I love. He said, when you were telling us about the Bible, when you were telling us about Jesus, it felt like I got a brand new pair of ice skates. And I was so excited for these ice skates. I took them out onto the ice and I learned lots of great new tricks. And I skated around and it was wonderful and I had a great time. And at the time where I got good on those ice skates, you came back to me and you said, I forgot to tell you one thing about those ice skates. They're actually so you can join our hockey team we're trying to win the championship this year. And the guy was like, what? Yeah, but I can do a triple Lutz or whatever it's called, you know? I know that's great. I need you to drive down the center and make a pass. Oh, what? I don't want it to be unclear this morning, Calvary. As I stand before you, our united church here at Calvary, I want to be clear to you. What, Cal what Jesus has called us to, the vision that Calvary has, is not that you would all have fun on your own with Jesus. That you would go off with no concerns of one another or the city that we live in or the things that we're trying to accomplish and the things that God has called us to. To have fun on your own and meet back up on Sunday for a cup of coffee. I'm sorry, that's not it. We've been called to a mission. You've been given a tool. You've been given a gift of salvation to individually free you from the bondage of sin and slavery that has held us so tightly, to be set free, to be remade, so that we may reach Orange County in the world for Jesus Christ. Do you realize that's what we're doing? Can I get an amen? Come on. We've been brought here. We've been united. The leadership here at Calvary said we need to sit in the same building to realize we're one and the same, old and young, man and woman, child and not child, everyone, we're together. Nobody calls people not children, but you're all not children. <laughs> Do you realize that? Get excited. The revolution has begun. The unexpected way is now. You've been given a freedom to change the world, so change it. It begins with you seeing the Messiah for who he really is. That's what it begins with. And I know there's some of you here, and I get that, who have no idea who the Messiah is. And you're like, yeah, but I want to know. Then come and know. Come and know today. Do not miss the revealed Messiah today. Find out who he is. I'm going to go to the, one of these prayer points right after this.
right after I finish talking, I'm going to go to one of these prayer points. If you want to know who Jesus is, come and talk to me. Come and talk to any of the people that stand at one of these prayer points. We have stations all around the room. Come and celebrate the Messiah. Celebrate the risen King who has put us on this unexpected way. If you have thoughts, put them on the card. If you want to know more about Jesus, put it on the card. But don't leave today not realizing that you're part of a team, our team, Jesus' team. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this story, Lord. Thank you for the way in which you've given us the word, Lord, that you've guided us, that you've called us to something so much greater than we could have ever realized, God. Lord, we realize that's true for the people in the Bible, but God, I pray a special blessing over this church, over Calvary, over the people on this campus this morning, that they realize that that same call that united the church together in the beginning unites us together now, and that the revealed Christ, the shining, beautiful, radiant Christ that stood with those disciples on the mountaintop is the same Jesus we worship here this morning. The Spirit of God is in us and unites us. God, may we act like a people that has the Spirit of God uniting us. May we sing this song like that. May we take communion like that. May we walk to the parking lot like that. God, I love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.